The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James. This show is brought to you by The Athletic UK. And welcome to the International Break Special. We're going to be assessing the state of play with all things Fulham as the lads take a two-week break. Uh, And later on in the podcast, we're going to be speaking to the Athletics Newcastle correspondent, think Peter, but with a Geordie accent, Chris Woff, all about the situation up in the North East, our relegation rivals trying to peer over the fence and uh, see the clear evident problems that lie up there can Fulham catch them in the table we'll certainly know a little bit more by the end of the podcast also we're going to be catching up with Farrell Monk from the Fulham Supporters Trust I mean sound like he's not part of Fulhamish as well but he's got his FST hat on today as the annual survey is out and there's some very interesting conclusions from that first let's introduce the regular Thursday club Jack Collins hello listeners how are we doing, mate? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. Uh, you know how much I love the international break. Um, I am one of few big subscribers to the fact that the international break is absolutely world class. Uh, and with what we've seen so far, the under 21 Euros, the AFCON qualifiers have been absolutely nuts. I'm having a great time. Yeah, we're going to discuss an international game in a second that you're not so fond about. And Peter <laughs> Rutzler, how are you doing? I'm glad you brought that up, Sammy, rather than me. I can't keep knocking him with uh, with anti-island comments. Was it the Omri one last time? Yeah, so exactly. Glad you brought that up. Um, I'm very well, thank you, Sammy. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Um, kind of weird not having Fulham on this weekend. Uh, my wife said to me, I oh, what time are Fulham playing this weekend? I'm like, they're not. And she was utterly delighted to, to hear that um, for the first time in five months that I, I haven't got to partition a part of my weekend in order to, to watch uh, 11 men kick a ball on a television. Right. Um, just before we get into the podcast, just to say that right now you can subscribe to The Athletic UK for just $3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the best football writers around including our own peter rutzler as well as ad free versions of all our podcasts including this one so go to theathletic.com forward slash full and pod to take advantage of this special 40 percent discount that's theathletic.com forward slash full and pod and we have to talk about it before we get into the kind of leads debacle from friday night peter um a real seismic moment in international football last night um mitrovic two goals for serbia one including um an expert lob over the island keeper and i look i, I feel for jack i feel for anyone that listens to this podcast who is an island supporter but i was also delighted to just see mitrovic with a smile back on his face putting the uh, hands to his ears uh, and celebrating and, and seeing a bit of the old Mitrovic come back. Yeah, what a cathartic moment for, for him last night. Obviously he scored twice and is now joint top goal scorer in, in Serbian history alongside Stjepan Bobek. Um, yeah, a, a big moment, I think, for, uh, for what has been a really difficult season for Alexander Mitrovic, both for club and for country. Um, you know, I was just reading up last night on on how he was sort of received, and you know, the reaction is he's he's a different animal when he's uh, when he puts on the red of Serbia, and um, I think I, I think there was quotes from him after the after the missed penalty against Scotland, of course, which stopped Serbia qualifying for the European Championships uh, back in November, where he said, you know, he didn't sleep for three nights, and um, being able to not only score such a fantastic goal, a lovely chip finish over Mark Travers, um, but then also to tie um, the national team record goal-scoring tally. Um, it's huge for him, absolutely huge. I mean, and to do that straight away, you know, next next time out in in, in Serbia Colours, he didn't start the game. No. Is that right? Yeah, he, he came sorry. on. He didn't start the game um, as well. So, I mean, there may even have been some talk about, you know, he's in he's in the squad, but is he really going to feature now? What kind of role is he going to play? A new manager, of course, for, well, for Serbia There was too. talk, Peter, about him not getting called up. Um, yeah. And, and I think you actually look at the form that the, the Serbian forward 
pack is, is in. Dusan Tadic plays that role, obviously, for Ajax. They're on fire. Dusan Vlavic is absolutely flying for Fiorentina. Luki Jovic found a new lease of life since going back to Frankfurt on loan. And there were genuine questions whether Mitrovic would get the nod uh, for the squad at all. Um, and I'm glad, uh, you know, the, the manager is obviously glad that, that he has picked him. <laughs> Look, it's one of those ones, right, where uh, this is pain, this is suffering, right? And, and, and I feel like maybe I finally got the karma to 11 years later for when Clint Dempsey scored against England at the World Cup and I absolutely lost it. I was going absolutely mad watching the US equalise and Rob Green drop that through his legs and just doing the Clint Dempsey celebration, giving it large. So maybe my, my time has finally come, right? Um, and there's karma knocking at my door. Or 11 years later. I don't mind this if Mitrovic goes on and scores loads of goals for a living. Yeah. If, if, if these are the last two goals Mitrovic scores this season, I will be livid. Livid. Um, <laughs> but if this kick starts the rest of his season and shows, you know, it shows why he should be part of the side, re-injects that energy, then I will gladly take this hit. And 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 I guess that's probably it, right? This is when it comes down to it. If it means that his full and form, yesterday was a game that Ireland probably weren't expecting to win. Um, got bear that in mind. It was it was a bad performance, but it's one of those things. And and if it means if that loss to in a game we're expected to lose means that Mitrovic goes on and kicks on with the rest of his season, it's a bitter pill, but one I will gladly swallow for the for the life of this football club. And that's important, I think. Are you proving that for you deep down it is club over country? No, because if this was <laughs> no, because if it was like Luxembourg. And Ireland were expected to win the game, I'd be livid, like full stop. <laughs> Whereas because it's a game, like it's, it's a bit like if Ireland played Portugal, right? And I don't know, then Ivan Cavaleiro gets a, a bizarre call up and scores against Ireland. I'll be like, well, that's annoying. But like, it's not a game that Ireland are probably looking to win. So so I guess that's the thing. I, I think the the club and country debate, I, I, I don't need to go into it. I think they are, they, they can have equal standings in hearts across the globe and this is weirdly where i wish don betts was stood next to me <laughs> because uh dom and i dom and i agree on international matters even if we do disagree on pretty much everything else um but yeah look it was the first goal was unbelievable i mean peter you were once of bournemouth football club what mm. on earth is mark travers doing um no and but it's a brilliant finish. It's instinctive, isn't it? And and that's what Mitrovic perhaps has been missing at Fulham. It's the kind yeah. of that confidence and instinctive nature to be like, I'm going to score here. Um, and, and, and he does. And then the header is brilliant, Mitrovic. It's worth pointing out that he's being delivered the balls there by Dusan Tadic, who's probably one of the best playmakers in Europe. He, you know, it's not the... the, the the options or the artillery he's been given currently by the Fulham pack. Um, so there is that to consider when you try and draw up the Mitrovic club versus country thing. Um, but look, it was, it's always great to see the big man smile, even at my own personal expense. And, and, and yesterday to see him smile was lovely. And, and to, to make him, you know, he's, he's had to prove a point there. You know, I mentioned Vlavic earlier, but Vlavic is 20 years old. He's come in for Fiorentina. He's well, 21 years old. He's come in his third season for Fiorentina. He's been banging in goals recently, scored um, a, a brilliant hat-trick the other week. And to be honest, and perfectly straight with you, I think it was right that he started for Serbia because he is the man in form. And so Mitrovic had a point to prove, to come off the bench and be like, hang on, don't forget about me. Like, I might not be playing club-wise, but I'm still here and I'm still useful. And he's done that. And hopefully, as we say, that's something that kicks him on towards the end of the season. Shoot for the king, better not miss. Hey. Hey. <laughs> um, right, let's come on to uh, a quick reaction then from Friday night's game against Leeds Pisa. Just the fallout from that. It was uh, it was so disappointing, wasn't it, really? We went into this game. We were here seven days ago saying about how it's a game that Fulham definitely can win. We need to match Leeds' intensity. We wondered if Leeds might be on the beach. None of that came true, did it? It just was a really... <sighs> bitter pill for Fulham to swallow and just prove that this relegation fight, this survival fight is still very much in play, but it's not going to be as easy as maybe we were guilty of thinking of after the Liverpool win. Yeah, it just sort of brought things back down to earth again and sort of reinforced why Fulham are where they are in the table, I think. Um, it, it was a poor performance. I think it's probably... It's probably heightened by the fact that things have been quite good for for some time now and there has been that level of consistency. Um, 
as you said, I don't think Fulham matched uh, Leeds' intensity on the night. And, and Scott Parker made a point of that in his pre-match press conference, said it before the game as well. You know, that's that's the first requirement against Leeds. And um, it didn't happen. Um, they didn't let Fulham settle. Um, found no way of playing through it. They struggled to connect any passes. There were too many errors in possession as well. Um, it, yeah, it, it just didn't work really. And I... I I think there, there are two sides to it. I think the, the worrying part was the errors that we saw for the goals. Um, you know, the Patrick Bamford goal where he sort of he's run off the shoulder of Anthony Robinson and, and, and ghosted in front of um, Tosna Adrabayo, the cross coming from the left. It's, 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 it's disappointing. And then the second one, of course, you know, where, where Mario Lamina is pickpocketed in midfield. Anderson's come flying out. Did that a couple of times in the game, actually. And, and it just, if, if you're not getting those decisions right, you're going to get picked off by a team like Leeds and, and as we saw with Rafinha's finished and we talked about him quite a bit before the game and, you know, he showed his quality with, with that goal. Um, it's, it's, it's a difficult one to be completely, uh, you know, decisive about what it, what it means um, in respect of, to Fulham's recent form and, and whatever else. Because Le- Leeds, as much as they've they sort of blown hot and cold, they are a very unique team in the way they play and you have to be unique in the way you face them and Fulham weren't terrible. They didn't, they didn't fail to create opportunities. You know, Elan Melier's made some big saves, some big saves to deny Josh Madger, uh, Anguissa uh, as well. And you just, those moments, those moments go the other way. And then maybe it's a slightly different, different story on the day. That said, Leeds had, had more of the chances. And I, I think when we actually look at the selection and, and those sort of things, and, you know, maybe it was a game for Ruben Loftus-Cheek. I think maybe this was actually a game where I think a lot of people who have been critical of him and I fully understand the criticism and we've we've talked about him so much in terms of what you know not providing the goals and assists from the position he's in but what he can bring is that sort of security and possession and that good uh, ball control his ability to hold off opponents especially Leeds who what I was really surprised by on the day was just how physical they actually are um, I mean, you, you imagine Patrick Bamford's first sort of play, you think of it, he's quite tall and quite lean. But when you actually see them up close, they are very, very physical. They get really up and at you. When they press, they don't just press the ball, they press all of the man. And it's uh, being able to hold on to the ball under that kind of pressure is a very, very difficult thing to do. And, and Fulham really struggled in in that sense. Um, and of course, we saw Mitrovic come on at half time, and it was obvious that the, that was Leeds' bigger, biggest weakness and probably may have been a case for him to, to start earlier. But Maybe now that he's got that confidence back, that's something that can be considered going forward. But yeah, as I say, uh, I've rambled on a bit there, but no. um, it's, uh, it's 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 hard to be like this is this is bad. But I think the concerning thing is the the mistakes because obviously that was critical about City. Yeah, having that again is the concern, and then taking that forward, it's got to be a case of reducing those. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones where Fulham were the second best team. I think we we lost to a better team. I said it at the end of the game. Stand by it now. Fulham were beaten, well beaten, I think, by by a team that were a lot better than them on the day in terms of the way the game played out, but were beaten by a solitary goal and had chances to not only go ahead, as Peter mentioned, the magic chance, an unbelievable save, the Anguissa chance, the one where Lookman swings and misses seconds before Rafinha goes down the other end and scores. And like we say, when Fulham... Uh, you worry about teams when they play badly and lose and they play well and lose, right? You think about teams that like Fulham who have played well in recent weeks and we've been impressed with them and that's one thing, but it's another thing to play badly and still be in the game and that's something that, that happened, right? We were, for the first time in a game that we've played quite poorly in, I thought fully in contention till the 90th minute and and that's key, I think. Like There are going to be games in this run-in that Fulham don't play well in and and I think we've seen, and we looked at the Sheffield United game, I didn't think Fulham were great. and But we got the job done. And I don't think we're a million miles off getting the job done against Leeds, despite the fact that we were just quite clearly inferior on the night. And and so when you look at games like that, I think that there's things to be learned. We created chances, we fashioned chances for the first time in a long time. We looked like a, a team that knew where the chances and the goals were coming from. We, we kind of attacked the right areas. I don't necessarily think that the Mitrovic substitution worked we almost brought him on to attack the aerial battle and then didn't provide him any ammunition to attack the aerial battle which seemed like a strange maneuver at the time still seems strange now um and that's not really to do with Mitrovic it's to do with the fact that if you're going to do it do that substitution you're going to make that change and then you're going to kind of allow the the press to basically drop off which is what Fulham did you have to try and provide 
ammunition for him to get on the end of and we just didn't really um so so that was a little bit strange from scotty for the first time in a while i thought he got got the subs wrong um but on the whole you take a look at that you go right it's a disappointing result Liverpool, you know newcastle then went and got had a, an even more disheartening result the day after we regroup go again and it's one of those games where you now look at villa and wolves and you think in the form they're both currently in there are points to be had there can we take advantage of this situation and and with a before you know with the amount of chance we created i think there's hope for the future there um peter just before we speak to chris woff um you did a piece this week on the athletic um with fulham fan and england cricketer ben folks thought you might like to have a quick opportunity just to plug that something a bit different for you yeah something a bit different caught up with him during the test series in india um an adopted fulham fan he talked about how he, he was on the books at, at ipswich um as a youngster uh fact, said it's been very difficult to to keep track of scores um and games when they're out there because of the time difference and things like that. But it was interesting talking to him about how cricket and football can overlap. Me, myself, I'm not the biggest cricket fan, but um, the differences between, obviously, the roles of the captain, but then also different squad dynamics, analysing what it's like as a prof- as a sportsman when you take a team up a division, when you almost gain the opportunity on merit to, to play in the top flight, but then not actually get it, um, and going through that as well. So lots of different topics covered and something slightly different as uh, we head into the international break, so... Um, who's the other there's another famous England cricketer Rory Burns full of, yeah that's yeah, Rory, it yes I couldn't work out it was Rory Burns or Jack Leach I knew I heard one of them um, was was a Fulham fan um, good to see and obviously Felix White uh, is who's a Fulham fan who's been on the podcast as well there's a little cricket and uh, Fulham overlap the, the Venn diagram there's the three of them uh, crossing both circles alright we're going to take a break and then afterwards we're going to speak to Chris Woff about all things Newcastle Part two of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy here with Peter and Jack, and we're joined now by the Athletic UK's Newcastle correspondent, Chris Woff. Chris, how you doing? I'm not too bad, thanks. Yeah, glad it's the international break, put it that way. Well, indeed, uh, a little bit of a respite from the continuing epic battle that is developing between our two clubs. And... This section of the podcast really is inspired by the quote, know your enemy, know yourself. Um, It's a two horse race, pretty evidently for survival between Fulham and Newcastle. And it's interesting, really, because both clubs are arriving at this relegation battle with wildly different trajectories. We've been talking for weeks how there's a pretty positive atmosphere at Fulham, although the recent couple of defeats to Man City and to Leeds haven't helped. But for Newcastle, it really does feel like the club's in some kind of free fall at the moment. The Brighton defeat at the weekend was really severe in its impact that it had on the fan base. And is it fair to say right now, Chris, that the atmosphere at Newcastle is is pretty bleak? Yeah, it feels like the complete opposite. And I mean, actually, Fulham not winning against Leeds may have kept Steve Bruce in a job. But certainly a lot of Newcastle fans are astounded that he's still there and would very much want to see a change and I think it's almost universal now certainly the local media and, and a lot of media personalities have now changed on that front but it certainly since December I mean Fulham been on that upwards trajectory Newcastle have won two games in 20 in all competitions two in 18 in the Premier League and I think they had an advantage after they beat West Brom in mid-December I think they had an 11 point advantage to Fulham and obviously that's now uh, down to two, Newcastle have a game in hand, but that's a weird at Liverpool. And although Liverpool away was the easiest game of the season a few weeks ago, I don't think it will be by the time Newcastle get there. And it it, it really does feel a lot of Newcastle fans are, are really really nervous, and they they look at it and they think it's it's almost inevitable that Fulham will overtake them. They look at that, that final game of the season that they, they, they think if, if Fulham are within enough points to overtake Newcastle, they very much fear that that will happen and it just feels like they are trying to hang on and trying to stay ahead. And I look at the two different teams and with Fulham, and this is externally, but looking in, it feels like they've had a goal all season. They've had a target, which is to survive. That's been the the, the, the narrow-minded approach, the right approach. And that sounds like the approach Newcastle had when they first came up uh, in 2017-18. But this season for Newcastle, it, they seem to have been distracted. There's no real direction that they're heading in and they've almost been lulled into this relegation battle and don't know how to get out of it. 
Chris, if you take that on, and naturally there, there's such an ill feeling around Newcastle with with the, the owners, the management, the the whole thing feels quite toxic. And you know, it's a it's a club that is obviously so centered around the city, right? And it is very much kind of wherever you go in Newcastle, St James's Park jumps out at you, and it's kind of the heart of, of so much about it. And is there a sense that relegation is kind of the an, an exit in some ways and I, and I don't mean this in a kind of any sort of like patronizing terms I mean it in the terms of you know everything seems to return to status quo as you continually stay up and palace fans will tell you that nothing ever changes while while it stays the same and you know there's just so much kind of get the owner out change the managers everything needs to change is there an element of this it's a bit like if we go down at least there's a chance of that reset there's some fans who feel that way, and and certainly in 2008-9, the hardest it was the two relegations I've had in the last 12 years have both been under Mike Ashley, and there was a sort of reset in 2008-9. There was to another extent in 2015-16, but yes, they always regressed to the mean. But the problem is that ultimately, as long as Mike Ashley remains owner, then these problems are going to continue, whatever division they're in. And the previous two relegations didn't get rid of Mike Ashley. He is trying to leave, but for the price that he wants, and Fulham fans won't want to hear all the ins and outs of, of what Newcastle United have been through over the last 14 months, uh, going through arbitration, Premier League, uh, owners and directors test takeover and things like that. But that deal would, that basically to sell the club that he has agreed at the minute, would look very murky if Newcastle were going to go down. Certainly the price would be renegotiated. We don't know if Mike Ashley would accept that. So, in some ways, yes, it may reset things, but equally, I think the future looks very bleak. Nobody, Mike Ashley doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to put any more money into the club. He's even less interested than he has been in the past. And so I think a lot of fans fear that Newcastle could do a Leeds or a Sunderland and actually just drop down the divisions. That is the real concern. Chris, you, you mentioned the, well, we, we, we mentioned it to you, I think, the white way of putting it, about the toxic atmosphere around Newcastle at the moment. It seems so different to, to the feeling at Fulham where things have been very positive despite you know, for a long period, about three-month period of almost being cut adrift. How is Steve Bruce still in the position he is in? Um, you know, we've seen the reports come out about, you know, you know Matt Ritchie and the training ground bust up. Um, wh- why is there that, that such um, support behind him when ev- everyone else seems to be saying, you know, how can this continue? I know George uh, and yourself wrote a, a piece about how uh, the defeat to Brighton felt like the end, and yet it's not quite the end. So h- how does that sort of square? Yeah, I mean, it did feel like the end and it's felt like uh, even then a belated end and yet yet he is still uh, a Newcastle manager. I think at any other club just about, he he would have been gone by now. There's so many complicating factors with Newcastle. I mean, Mike Ashley is just so uh, unpredictable to begin with. He doesn't ever do what you'd necessarily expect him to do. Steve Bruce has a relatively low salary, but he has a, a very high clause if he gets sacked that Newcastle would have to pay and they're reluctant to pay that certainly between now and the approximately end of the season the two times that did go down Newcastle changed manager with 10 games to go and 8 games to go and they still went down and my understanding is that people in the club say it as well it didn't work last time so why would it work now I think that's a slight I think that's basically trying to rewrite history to a certain extent and being selective in what they remember because really that wasn't the reason it went down. And certainly when Rafa Benitez came in in 2015-16, he did change things. He just didn't, he wasn't given enough time and ultimately things went against him. But really there was a huge uplift. And so I think Steve Bruce to me seemed like a man on Saturday who expected the worst to come. He said after the game, I accept the consequences of what come my way. And I think he thought at that point he was going to be sacked. Some of the players in the changing room, I understand, thought he was going to be sacked or thought he had been sacked and then thought in the days to come that he would be sacked. So really, I, I, I can't actually answer your question. Nobody nobody at Newcastle really briefs. They're not a club who briefs. They don't give all this information. That They don't think, that, which was why it was so strange on Sunday, the day after the Brighton game, when Newcastle got a message out quite quickly that, Steve Bruce is not going to be fired. But it didn't feel like a sort of unequivocal, he's definitely not going to go regardless of what happens. It almost felt like a, we will wait and see what happens. And Newcastle didn't have anyone lined up when Alan Pardew left in 2015. They didn't have anyone lined up when Rafa Benitez came in in 2015-16. He approached the club himself. And it doesn't seem like they've got anyone else lined up now. And I think that's part of the problem as well, is that they pretty much don't have an alternative to Steve Bruce unless they turn to Graham Jones, who's an assistant coach they brought in in January. My fear, Chris, with with Newcastle and the situation is that, you know, currently, whilst Steve Bruce is making quite baffling decisions tactically, 
a big part of the problem is the injuries, right? Alanson Maximan and, and Callum Wilson is a massive loss for any team, right, to deal with. And it looks like Callum Wilson's back in training. I, I'd just be interested to know what the update is with everyone injury-wise because... Yeah, my concern is that when some of these players do return, even though there's a big crisis at Newcastle, you have got enough talent in your side at full strength to win some football matches and put Fulham under some real pressure. Yeah, COVID and injuries have had a big effect. I mean, essentially, Newcastle had it with the first club to have a game called off because of a COVID outbreak that was, was the, around the end of November, start December. And the after effects of that have been huge. The likes of Jamal Lascelles announced that maximum were out for a long period of time. My understanding is at least some of the players still haven't fully physically recovered from that. But then they have been struck by these big injuries recently. Miguel Almiron returned but didn't look fully fit against Brighton. He'd been out for a few weeks. Callum Wilson's been out for about six weeks now and then Alan Maxman's been out for three or four weeks and it looks like Wilson certainly has an outside chance I think of being back for Spurs which is on Easter Sunday if not probably the week after I think Sam Maximan maybe around maybe not the first game back but probably the second and Newcastle have undoubtedly missed him I think Sam Maximan when he came back made a huge impact because the issue with him last season was as exciting as he was he didn't really actually create or score as many goals as he should have done he did for a few weeks after he came back from COVID, then he got injured. Callum Wilson is Newcastle's one goal scorer. He'd only scored actually in one game in the 10 before he got injured. And that shows Newcastle's plight and Newcastle's issues. that They have a goal scorer there, but they weren't actually creating chances for him. But without the goal scorer at all, they really don't look like doing anything. And and they've got this weird system they're playing at the minute where they're not playing without, they're playing without a striker, even though the rest of the players can't score goals. It's all very strange. None of it feels right. It feels... That feels um, since Graham Jones has come in, it seems to have been led by him. He played at, parts at Luton, but Steve Bruce is picking the players and none of it seems to work that well. But undoubtedly, Callum Wilson and Alan St. Maximan returning would be absolutely huge. And the more games Newcastle can get them back for to get them fit for the run-in when they have Sheffield United and Fulham to play, the better, really. Yeah, I mean, injuries have, uh, have played a part. I think for a lot of sides this season, we talked to Sheffield United a couple of weeks back and and they were saying that they think they've been hit worse by injuries in Liverpool, but no one talks about that because that's not the narrative. And and actually, I think you see when it comes to Newcastle that that, that has been a major factor, the, the COVID outbreak, as you say, and, and those injuries. I, I wanted to go back on, on something that you said earlier and... And uh, by the way, I completely feel your plight on uh, not being able to score goals. That's uh, that's something that we're uh, we're suffering from too, and we can't even blame an injury crisis. And um, but it is in the if if Steve Bruce did go, it, Graham Jones obviously is the is the man that seems to be the the natural kind of fit to to take over. But I remember these the years, and it's not the last relegation, the one before when when Alan Shearer came in, and it was like right the moment feels like he's gonna you know, club legend save the club, and it just sort of all went downhill. And there's there's kind of part of me that was wondering, you know, if if they do make a change, who would you like to see? Is it the fact that Graham Jones has made an impact and you think he'd have a a bigger impact if he was given the full helm? Or is there something that Newcastle have to be like, right, we need to make a statement here with, with pulling someone in and, and, and really being like, we are kicking on. This is not the place where this club wants to be. Well, that, that's the, I mean, that's the question. I think that's partly the reason why there hasn't been a change as well is there isn't necessarily a direct uh, replacement and equally who Newcastle fans would want to come in and who Newcastle would actually approach given the history under Mike Ashley and the managers they bring in, Steve Bruce even being one of them, they're completely different matters. But Graham Jones, I think it would be interesting if, J- if Jones had come in in January when he was brought in assistant as manager, I think that there would have been uproar because the only time he's really taken charge of a club was Luton who were heading for relegation from the championship when he was there. Um, and he's gone back to being an assistant since and he's, he's regarded highly as an assistant coach but I think it's almost got the point where it feels like anyone but Steve Bruce certainly for some, for some Newcastle fans they just want to see a change and and I think people in and around the club including some of the players to an extent w- would welcome that as well Graham Jones is, is, is well liked from what I understand they, they, they seem to like his training and I think that they're almost some people around the club feel that if you don't make a change, this is only heading one way. If you if you do make a change, whether that's Jones or whether you bring in a manager from elsewhere, I don't know who that would necessarily be. A lot of fans would like to see Chris Wilder, but I just can't see that in the short term. I can't see why he would take the job right now. Maybe in the summer if Newcastle were to go down, but I just find it difficult to comprehend him coming now. But if someone else came in, you would give the potential for an uplift, for a potential change, and for everyone to just feel 
that little bit better and a little bit more connected. Whereas there are all these divisions at the minute. You mentioned Matt Ritchie earlier. There's been Carl Darlow was annoyed with the way he was dropped because it leaked out in the media. Uh, the Longstaff brothers are annoyed. Dwight Gale and Andy Carroll are annoyed because they're not playing. So there's just a lot of divisions. So I think that just really, yeah, there is this feeling that anyone may give them an uplift and that is less of a risk in many people's eyes than just sticking with Steve Bruce. What have you made of Fulham? Chris, I mean, I imagine from your perspective, they've just sort of been that spectre looming behind you for quite some time that could cause intolerable pain, but haven't actually managed to inflict it yet. You know, Fulham have been in the bottom three for a significant period of time now. You know, performances have been good. I think generally perception has been quite positive in the in the direction Fulham are going, but they still haven't picked up the points they need. For example, Leeds on, on Friday night was a big game. It was a good opportunity to put some pressure on. And maybe, as you said earlier, the flip side is that he's kept Steve Bruce in a job. But what have you sort of made of Fulham? Because the, the narrative has been positive, but obviously they still haven't managed to leapfrog Newcastle. Yeah, I mean, I was really impressed with Fulham at St. James's in uh, December, and uh, albeit a, quite a soft decision got Newcastle a point but Fulham even with 10 men completely dominated and I think the big difference between the two sides was you can see Fulham have a structure certainly to the midfield or did then and in games since I've, I've been impressed as well and and yeah what I like about Fulham is clearly when the when you f- first came up there was definite defensive struggles and there seemed to be the team everyone was going to was going to hammer and that's really been flipped completely on its head and you can see how Parker and the coaching staff have worked with the team you can see what they're trying to do and yes it hasn't worked in terms of they haven't quite got the results they need there's been a lot of draws in there but the difference with Newcastle is when I watch Fulham I can see what they're trying to do I can see what Parker's trying to instill you can see how that he's trying to improve players, what he's trying to get out of them. You watch Newcastle, there's no discernible style of play. It's unclear what Steve Bruce wants to do. There's very few players you can say that during Steve Bruce's time, he has actually improved. Defensively, they've got worse. Offensively, it hasn't really changed. They've struggled for goals for quite a while and it hasn't really changed. So I look at Fulham and I do see, and and with that, what I mentioned earlier, that, that, that the goal for Fulham all season has been survival and it became even more clear after the first few games when they got hammered that that had to be the direction they're headed in. Newcastle have almost been dragged into this situation, don't really know how to deal with it. And so um, I'd, I just think that if Fulham were to leapfrog Newcastle at some stage, I don't see that changing, even with the game of the final game of the season. I just think that because the way that Fulham are playing they've got Newcastle still in their sights. And I think that because you, it's almost a carrot for Fulham to chase as well. And so although, yes, they aren't quite getting the, the final results, they are struggling for goals. I just think that Fulham have more of a direction to them. And so it's essential for Newcastle to to, bridge, to make that gap so that Fulham can't bridge it. And at the moment, they can't do that. And it still feels that even the, the way that Fulham have been, even the Leeds result, I still feel that, that Fulham are going to close that gap at some stage. So, May the 23rd, Fulham versus Newcastle. Um, I can see Sky Sports are already uh, creating the graphics for it. Um, yeah, survival... This one's black and white, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> survival <laughs> Sunday, magpie in crosshairs kind of stuff. Um, and what do you think, though, the impact will be of fans returning to grounds? Could be. like It's still very much if, muts, if buts and maybes. The Premier League seem to be hell-bent on moving the fixtures so that uh, at least um, two of the rounds of fixtures, maybe three, get played with fans, assuming everything goes to plan. Because Jack actually raised a very good point a couple of podcasts ago of like, Will it actually be a positive for Newcastle fans if you have fans in the ground for that game against Sheffield United? If if Steve Bruce is still in the dugout and you are maybe trying to chase Fulham or Fulham is still trying to chase Newcastle, it, it actually could have the opposite effect, maybe. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if fans had been in grounds, I mean, this is all a sort of... Uh, almost like a parallel history where you can't know for certain because Newcastle's rules may not have been as bad as they've been. But if, if fans had been in grounds, it would have turned toxic by now. That The vast majority of supporters have turned against Steve Bruce. And I think that is that is the concern. And it would be interesting to see how fans would be going into that Sheffield United game, given Newcastle's position in the table, because I'm sure some fans would be going thinking, right, we need to give the full support because we need to, certainly to the players because we want to, to stay up. But equally, this is going to be their first chance to have demonstrated at the ground since, well, to have given their opinion since Newcastle haven't had a home game since February 2020. They didn't have a single uh, one of those matches in in November or December where some fans are allowed in. Newcastle haven't had that. And 
I certainly, I mean, Steve Bruce has, has said all along he wants fans to return as soon as possible. I'm sure a large part of him does, but I'm sure he equally realises that he probably is in the job now because fans haven't been there. And so I don't think it would be to Newcastle's benefit to, to have fans back. I think that there's going to be, it'll be a strange atmosphere for a start because as I say, there'll be that split. So um, I do think that it's fairer if if there's games home and away that teams get in terms of having having fans in. But I think it's more of an advantage for Fulham because I'm sure if Newcastle were to go to Craven Courage on the final day of the season and Fulham know if they win that they stay in the Premier League at Newcastle's expense, I think that is a huge advantage to them. Whereas the week before, I just think for Newcastle, given the uncertainty, the confusion, the, the, the mixed feelings, I don't see it as, as the massive positive that we would usually say historically fans are at St. James's Park for Newcastle United. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. It's it's a really strange one. It's like a, a kind of obviously everyone wants to be back in the ground, but actually when you when you think about it, and and I think there's parts of this for everyone, right? I think it's as I think it's as bad at Newcastle as it is anywhere else because uh, because of what you're describing and the fact that people haven't been able to show their anger with the situation that's been allowed to develop. Um, but I do think there's a point that some players, I think, have thrived in this place because there's no pressure on their backs and there's no kind of huge... You stick fans in suddenly for the crunch game at the end of the season and that could all change really, really quickly. And and suddenly players start doing things that they haven't been doing all season because because the fact that they haven't had that kind of pressure and atmosphere for, for so long. So it'd be a really interesting one. I mean, Chris... There's a quite a horrible run here now for for Newcastle, and you know you said at the end that there's the Sheffield United game and then there's a Fulham game at the end, and and those two are the you know the big kind of beacons in this run running that that look like points available. What's the kind of feeling going into the next couple? Because as you mentioned, Spurs is the first game back, but it's the first of quite a tricky run, and. You know, there's a lot kind of riding on this. Fulham play Villa and Wolves next, whereas Newcastle seem to have a lot of of the big clubs in in the next kind of period. Yeah, I mean, there's there's, there's trepidation really. I mean, you, you look at the the fixtures to go, and and I know that this is the sort of the way that fans are anyway. Certainly, if you're in this sort of run, but you look at it, and there's there's no game that I could categorically say to you, Newcastle will go and win that. There's games that they probably should go and win, but. And in the next few weeks, certainly not as much. I mean, against Spurs, you have arguably the two most unpopular managers with their own fan bases going one on one with each other with no fans there. Um, but I mean, Spurs will be Spurs will see this as, as an ideal game for them because Newcastle are the team everyone wants to play at the moment. They don't seem to have that that structure, that direction. Brighton couldn't win at home or they'd won once at home all season. They've scored six goals against Newcastle this season, which I think is, is a fifth of all their goals have come against Newcastle. They had two players who hadn't scored since January and December and they both scored against Newcastle. So yeah, the, the run of fixtures is terrifying, but it could be it could be anyone. I mean, you say they're more difficult games, but in some ways it could be anyone Newcastle play at the minute. There is no justification for saying they're going to go and beat anyone. They, they couldn't beat Fulham in December at St. James's Park. They went to Sheffield United, who hadn't won all season, got absolutely turned over. Um, they went to Brentford in the championship, who put out a semi-reserve team, got beat. They went to West Brom, couldn't score, drew nil-nil. They, they lost at home to Leeds. They lost at home to Crystal Palace. You just look at it and say, who who is it Newcastle can beat at the moment? They, they went to they went to Everton and won, but Everton were terrible. And then they beat Southampton at home when Southampton were, were terrible as well. But they haven't. There's no game where I, I can say, yeah, Newcastle are going to do really well in that. So it's almost, in some ways, playing. If you flip it on its head, perhaps having the difficult run of fixtures and it's having not having that expectation yeah. is maybe to Newcastle's benefit in some ways because they haven't been able to handle the pressure situation of playing the teams in and around them in recent weeks. Hi. So do you think they'll stay up then, Chris? <laughs> this is a mean question to ask. <laughs> um, I genuinely think it's it, it, it's up to Fulham, and if Ful, if Fulham if Fulham show some sort of form, I think Newcastle will drop like a stone. So I think if you pushed me, I'd say, yes, I think Newcastle are going to go down. Just, I think they'll just go down. Um, If it it very much depends on Fulham's form. I really do think it's more up to Fulham than to Newcastle because I can't see Newcastle saving themselves. So I think it's up to Fulham to save them. Well, the gauntlet is well and truly laid down. May the 23rd, it's still two months away, but (laughs) it feels ominous um, that date at the end of the at the end of the road so um chris we'll we'll see what happens thank you so much for for giving us a bit of perspective on everything newcastle ahead of what plans to be a a big couple of months for both teams 
part three of the Fulhamish podcast. It's Sammy here with Peter Rutzler. Uh, Jack's buggered off, so it's just us two left, Peter. But we do have uh, an able replacement uh, in Farrell Monk with his Fulham Supporters Trust hat on. How are you doing, Farrell? Yeah, very good. Uh, I just caught the end of Jack there, and he said one short Fulham fan for another. So I'm glad to be keeping the average down. A like-for-like substitution, as they call it. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, Jack doesn't have the stamina anymore, so I'm the impact sub. His words were, I don't do football politics. So um, I don't think that's the only reason he jumped out. But anyway, let's get into it, Farrell. Um, The Fulham Supporters Trust annual survey came out today as we're recording on Thursday the 25th. And just wanted to give you a platform, really, to tell us what some of the most interesting findings were for it. It's been three or four years now that the the FST has run this survey. It's become a big part of what the FST does. And you had another great turnout. Yeah, we were quite pleased with the turnout, obviously, that we couldn't reach fans at the stadium. So we thought that the amount of people would be impacted. But we actually got pretty much bang on the same amount of people as last year, as around 1,400 fans uh, took part in the survey. And, um, you know, we got a very, very broad range of the fan base. You know, we're not just trying to reach season ticket holders here. Um, You know, you are a Fulham fan if you go to every game or you go to Bolton away on a Tuesday or if you're out in America and you watch us every single game, your your view is as important to us. because you are a Fulham fan, you have that same bond with the club regardless. So, you know, um, just to give you a general idea of of the spread, there was about 72% of the respondents were either season ticket holders or or members. So, yeah, it was a really good turnout. We're very, very pleased with it. And of course, it brought some very interesting results. So, yeah, Farrell, I noticed that the three main takeaways that the FST were kind of highlighting was um, Fulham's involvement with gambling sponsors and the kind of mental health aspect of not going to football as well as pay-per-view football, which, of course, was a big issue for those of us in the UK earlier on in the season. So what were the main takeaways that that the FST found? So um, I think I'll start with the the gambling sponsorship one, which... um, you know, when we were putting this together, we obviously knew of the review into um, the Gambling Act and how and how it's affecting football. As we know, that you know the gambling industry seems to have this this hold over the over over football at the moment. I think around I don't know, almost half of the Premier League teams have have a gambling sponsor, and most of the Championship clubs certainly do have a have a gambling sponsor, um, at least on their shirts and. So we wanted to gather fans' views about it. And yeah, we knew that there was a bit of um, disgruntlement around that, but we didn't really expect the levels of which that we saw. So 47% of the, of the, of the respondents said that they want gambling sponsors banned in football altogether, which um, is quite as surprising. But, you know, almost half the fan base there, if it's representative. So on top of that, you know what came out of it was that 22% of, of fans don't purchase the, the the kits, the official kits with the sponsorship on it purely because of those gambling brands. And that's quite a high number for, I was wondering, you know, was that quite surprising in that sense? Cause you know, that's one, one in five who took the survey. So one in five supporters would consider actively not buying the shirt because of it. You know, is it, was that, did that come out of the blue? Um, yeah. I mean, so it wasn't, Someone suggested that we ask that question and I thought it, you know, I thought that there would be some, I mean, if I'm talking my own personal experience that I'm, I'm openly uncomfortable with, with the gambling sponsorship of Fulham Football Club. I believe that, you know, while the industry as it is, um, there could be more done and there is a social aspect to that. Um, I'm of course saying that, you know, knowing that, Fulhamish gets um, some sort of sponsorship from some gambling here or there. I'm not particularly against gambling altogether, but I wouldn't go and then not purchase the shirt, for example. You know, I guess is 22% of fans who wouldn't purchase a shirt. Maybe the sponsorship that a gambling company can bring in kind of offsets that, but I guess good for the club to be aware of 
the facts. Yeah, absolutely. One of the aims of the Fulham Supporters Trust is to make sure that the club are taking the fans' views into account in their decision-making. What we would like from them is that when it comes to sort of these big issue things that do affect the, the fan base, that they consult the fan base first. They get they gather they gather our views before going ahead with these things. I don't think that they necessarily grasped that the gambling gambling sponsorship had such a had such an effect or, or on the psyche of of the fan base. And hopefully, with these alarming figures, that the club will start to recognise that perhaps that they should consult, you know, not just the trust, but actually going out to the fans before they they do some of these things. Coming on to pay-per-view, um, this is something that I personally was livid about earlier in the season. I know many echoed it, but I, I really felt like I was just so disgusted with the model that to watch you know, the majority of Premier League football or all Fulham games, you not only needed a £40 Sky Now TV subscription, you not only needed a £25 a month BT subscription, but then you needed to pay £15 a game on top for games that you had no um, knowledge or control over whether they were going to be broadcast on those channels to in order to watch them. I thought it was a travesty and fortunately the Premier League saw some sense, but I think their arm was twisted by the change in lockdown circumstances as opposed to um, kind of public pressure. It came out in the, in the survey that 5% of Fulham fans supported um, the £15 charge. Do you think that will make Fulham think twice before voting for this again? Because Fulham were one of the 19 clubs that did approve this charge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but after that first stint of it, um, the whole model was dragged through the mud, basically, because of how much it was rejected by the fan base, you know. I think the really interesting thing is the takeaway from the the survey was how high the approval rating for the model itself. So it was up, it was 38% of fans approve of the model itself. And if if people aren't aware, it's it's to do with the broadcasters themselves providing it at cost. And then any money was then being given back to the Premier League, which was then going to be distributed to the clubs. Now, I don't know whether any money found its way back to the club and nor will we know anytime soon uh, we have asked the club and they haven't they haven't told us so you know that's one side of it i i do think and this is this is a massive assumption here is that if that 15 pound charge was lower at a more reasonable sort of 10 pounds maybe even 5 pounds then I do wonder if that 38% becomes 50%, 60%, 70% approval for the model itself. I think the fact that we're we're sort of talking about it a little bit after about what it happens, but how, how bad it seemed because of that £15 charge and how much it was rejected by, by the fan base. And hopefully we're, we're at the end of this pandemic and we won't need to worry about this for the future. But just in case, just in case the discussion ever comes up again, about pay-per-view, there is now real valuable data that the club, the Premier League and the broadcasters that go back on and say, ah, yeah, we made a mistake on that £15 charge. We're never going to go anywhere near that line ever again. I guess the the interesting thing with, with pay-per-view, and especially when you look further down the leagues, is, is how important it was for, for clubs who couldn't necessarily get people through the gates. And then the perception sort of changes with the Premier League and and the cost as well when it was fifteen pounds, and I do you do wonder if it was at a lower co- lower fee whether there would have been the same sort of same sort of pushback. But, but as you say, Farrell, you you have the, the data there that clearly says that as we all knew at the time that this was not the best best route to go down. And and just on the um, the negative impact of not being able to attend matches, you know the the data that came back uh, seemed to suggest, suggest that it was younger age groups that actually felt that impact a lot more. Yeah, sadly, these this was again one of the one of the things that um, has cropped up that was quite surprising about it. And we obviously know about stories and the awareness is growing about the you know the effect of mental health, but the the effect of mental health on fans by not attending football matches. Forty eight percent of fans 
were clear that they had experienced a negative impact to their mental health as a result of not being able to attend football matches. That's that's pretty staggering figures. And it's also quite shocking and taking aback that when you actually look and delve deeper into the figures that it tends to affect um, the younger age groups. And the 19 to 25 year olds of uh, almost half of them followed by the under 18s as the largest group of 46% and 43% respectively. Those are not insignificant figures. I think that's really interesting because I remember, I think it was a few months into the pandemic and I think there were some older fans that Fulham very nobly gave gave a ring, gave them a phone call. I think maybe it was the ticket office and they just wanted to check in how they were. And I think that's a, a really lovely thing that the football club did. But I'm pretty sure the majority of that was older fans. And look, the logic behind that was probably that older fans were uh, a bit more locked down during the first wave. Um, everything was a bit more unknown and people were having to shield, etc. But maybe actually the mental health of young fans may be taken slightly for granted. And I'm kind of surprised in a way to see those figures. But then again, when you think about it, actually, you realise that for a lot of younger people, going to football is one of the few things they have. You know, if you're maybe, and this is massively stereotyping, it's not the same for everyone, but if you're older, you might have family, you might have been to lots of football matches in your life and maybe the importance of it is is slightly diminished now but certainly you know for, for, for younger fans where Fulham is everything to them it's the biggest thing in their lives and to lose it in such a dramatic way I, I can see how it's taken such a, a profound toll I'm just finally foul obviously there's a lot more to this survey than can be uh, reiterated in a small section of a podcast so where can people go if they want to find out more from from the results because there was plenty of eye-opening uh, statistics from the survey yeah like sammy says there's quite a, a lot of other things that we did cover in the survey again i'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone that completed the survey and shared with friends and and other fulham fans and shared on forums and and um tried to spread the word and whatnot. So we obviously we covered like uh, to do with the Riverside stand, which is obviously coming up. Safe standing. So yeah, and if you want to find the full report, and there's a there's a video on there that summarizes some of the data. If you just go to FulhamSupportersTrust.com, and you'll be able to to find it on there. All right. Well, thank you very much, Farrell. And um, that's it for this week's podcast. Um, no podcast over the weekend. Uh, we're going to have a Fulham-induced nap uh, from from everything. But um, myself, Peter and Jack will be back next Thursday previewing that huge game uh, against Aston Villa on Easter Sunday, which has been moved, by the way. If you weren't aware, it was going to be Saturday night at 8 o'clock, but it's now been moved to Easter Sunday at 4.30. Still on Sky, I believe. It's all to do with the scheduling, I think, of Liverpool's um, Champions League matches that is the reasoning behind that. So... Um, uh, all I need to do is thank uh, my guest today. Thank you, Peter Rutzler, for being here for the whole thing, uh, the marathon podcast. Yeah, I'm here to the end. Your dedication, Sammy. Thank you for having me. Unlike people whose name begins with <laughs> J. And uh, Farrell, thank you for being on. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. We'll be back in a week. Have some nice Fulham time off. Come on, you whites. Mm-hmm.